We're reading tonight from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Amen. So tonight we're following on in this series uh, throughout the year where we've been looking at hope, and we've looked at hope for the community, hope for various different people within the community, and so on. And the title tonight that I've given this sermon isn't the most enticing or the most encouraging. Hope for the guilty. Who wants to be called or termed guilty? Billy Colney, the, uh, the Scottish comedian, is reported to have claimed that he left Catholic convent school with an A-level in guilt. I don't know whether that's true or not, but what is guilt? Is it a good thing or is it harmful? Does it help us to live moral lives? Or does it bring unhealthy self-condemnation and shame? Some of you may remember the advertisement quite a number of years ago for cream, dairy cream, naughty but nice. Yes, we know it doesn't do us good, but yeah, a little bit every now and again. Let's indulge and ignore the guilt that it might bring to us. But guilt has been defined as an emotional state produced by thoughts that we have not lived up to our ideal self and we could have done otherwise. Guilt is both cognitive and emotional. In other words, it's something we know and that then affects how we feel. We violated the set of moral codes that we have set up uh, and that we try to follow. In other words, our conscience tells us we've done something wrong. But guilt isn't a very popular concept today. Some people consider it's an outmoded concept, something that was used in the past to try and make people conform to certain standards, make them behave in certain ways. Peer pressure, the pressure of the community. And it's part of postmodern culture that there are no absolutes. So that in certain circumstances, almost any action can be justified. And it will be different from one person to another or from a different set of circumstances. Or it may be that some people feel that we can set our own moral standards. And that's what we aim for. And of course, we will always set standards that are higher for other people than we have for ourselves. And we will justify any failures with excuses like, well, I tried my best. I did my, uh, it's not really that important. I'm still better than so-and-so. It's only wrong when you get caught. Or who am I to judge? 
critical question then that we ask is, well, who sets the standards that we're going to try and follow? And can we depend on standards that are set by our society, by lawmakers? Because they are also changing over time. Some examples are people who live together but aren't married, used to be called living in sin. That's not a term that's used very often now. Having an Ill illegitimate child was something that was a disgrace. I just find some statistics. In 1979, 11% of children were born outside of wedlock. By 2016, more than 50% were being born outside of wedlock. The guilt associated in previous generations has now gone because society's standards have changed. Cheating at sport. I grew up firmly believing that British sportsmen did not cheat. That was the Europeans and the South Americans, but it wasn't the British. Now you just look at the television, you see the shirt pulling, the drug abuse, the diving, the ball tampering. British sportsmen are just as guilty as any others. As I've said, when we make the mistake of setting the standards ourselves, the danger is that then we either set the bar too low or we move the bar in different circumstances over time. So what is the problem that we're facing? Well, basically, I feel if there are absolute standards where some things are morally wrong and always will be wrong, if we break those, what are the consequences? Or who sets those rules? Well, as Christians, we believe the Bible sets the rules, the Ten Commandments. Jesus summarized those as, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we're following or trying to live up to those codes, we won't follow after other gods, we won't murder, we won't lie, won't commit adultery with another man's wife, we won't steal, and so on. Maybe as you hear that, you think, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not such a bad person after all. But then we see how Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount expanded on those laws. And he said, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, he said, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. See how the bar is being raised, the standard is higher. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the standard that God has set, the one that he expects us to aspire to, to strive for. And so that the diagnosis that the psalmist comes up with in the psalm that Claire read in verse 3 reads, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? We're guilty. All of us are guilty as charged. 
And if you forgive the language, I find a quote from a, an old commentator uh, called Adam Clark. He said, If thou shouldst set down every deviation in thought, word, and deed from thy holy law, and if thou shouldst call into judgment for all our infidelities, both of heart and life, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand such a trial? And who could stand acquitted in the, in the judgment? So the problem envisaged by the psalmist is of being in the depths. Verse 1, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you. And these aren't life's troubles that he's referring to, but his own iniquities, his own sins. And they apply to us as well. Out of the depths of our sins, we need to turn and cry to God because we are guilty of having broken God's law. They leave him, the psalmist, and they leave us without a foothold in the sea of trouble and without secure standing in the presence of God. He uses the expression, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? And the stand that he's referring to there, it's a judicial phrase, and it notes a man being absolved or justified in a trial. Psalm 1 verse 5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. In Romans, we read, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand, where it is opposed to falling. So the standing is not physical standing, but it's a term that you are right with God. And because of the record of our sins, none of us can stand before God in our own merits. And so we're faced with a huge pro problem of sin, which is leaving us guilty before God, and the sheer impossibility of a sinner standing before the Lord. And the psalmist's reaction is, first of all, to pray, and then his attitude is to wait. He doesn't try to reform his own life himself. There's no adoption of a new rule of life, whereby past misdeeds might be balanced out by future good deeds. Someone has described working that way or thinking that we can save ourselves that way as trying to lift ourselves off the ground by using our, pulling on our own shoelaces. It just physically is not possible. And Dirk Kidner, another commentator, writes, self-help is no answer to the depths of distress, however useful it may be in the shallows of self-pity. If salvation is to come to you or to I, it must come from God. That's why we must pray. And then it's wholly dependent on divine decision and action. So therefore we must wait. I wait for the Lord with my whole being, waits, and in or for his word, I put my trust. David writes in verse 5. Waiting here means to wait with confident expectation. But waiting isn't easy. We're very impatient. But waiting looks 
two or four God's word. The certainty of hope is nourished by some truth that God has already revealed or promise he has already made. And we'll see what those promises are as we go on through the psalm. So this is not a hopeless message, but it is bringing hope for us as guilty sinners before God. Note from verse 1, even though the psalmist is in a position of sin, that constitutes no barrier to praying. Sometimes people think, I can't come to God because I'm, there's stuff wrong with my life. God accepts us as we are. I call to the Lord and with my own voice. And that's because I'm not coming claiming a righteousness of my own, but I'm coming seeking mercy and grace. Sin and need are the occasion of the prayer. The sinner is the voice of prayer and grace is the basis on which the prayer rests. So we've already noted how impossible it is to keep the standards outlined by God and Jesus. However, taking it to another level, the vocabulary in the Old Testament, iniquity is what we are rather than what we do. Pictorially, the word basically means warped. You can think of warped timber. It's bent. It doesn't run straight. And the bent of our nature is towards sin, wrongdoing, and rebellion against God's laws. It's our fallen nature which we can no more change of ourselves and we can cease to be human beings. What we are by nature traps us in hopelessness and condemnation before God. We sin because we have a human nature. All of us as parents or as grandparents, we know you don't have to teach a child to do what is wrong. It comes naturally to all of us. So God's standard is holiness, an implacable, unchanging hatred of anything that would become against his holiness, so causing separation and judgment. If God kept a record of our sins, who could stand? If the message were to end there, we are in a hopeless condition, a hopeless situation. Our sins, iniquity, are an affront to a holy God. He can't tolerate them, and there's nothing we can do to deserve or earn his forgiveness. Forgiveness is sometimes called, defined as letting go of a debt. Is there any way that God can let go of this debt that we owe him? So I've described a problem. Is there a solution? that we can find. And praise the Lord there is if we go on reading in the psalm because there is hope for the guilty. Verse 5 reads, With you, that is with God, there is forgiveness. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Then verse 7, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfeeling love 
and with him is full redemption. I want us just to look at those three words that I've highlighted and read. Forgiveness, unfailing love, and redemption. Because they're all from God. And our hope is totally dependent on him. First of all, let's look a little bit at forgiveness. The wonderful, mysterious thing is that the nature of God that finds us in condemnation is the same nature that brings us release. If God wasn't holy, sin wouldn't matter. If God took no notice of sin, our long record of wrongdoing, rebellion, unworthiness wouldn't matter, wouldn't be a problem at all. But God is holy, and he is angered by sin ceaselessly. If our image of God is similar to a kindly, indulgent grandfather who never corrects, but always gives in, then we can't understand how God would feel towards sin. And this is a problem. We need to learn to view sin not just as a nuisance, a slight, an aberration within human life and relationships, but as the object of unrelenting divine detestation, anger, and hostility. God is holy, and he cannot abide or tolerate sin in any shape or form. But Psalm 130 speaks for the whole Bible when it says, and the literal translation of the phrase is, but with you is the forgiveness. It's the Lord's constant companion. This forgiveness can deal with whatever the need is. A forgiveness that this, uh, a forgiveness that satisfies the divine nature and meets human need, and the only forgiveness truly worthy of the name. The verb that's used here occurs occurs forty six times in the Old Testament, and every time it relates to an act of God, never human forgiveness. And forgiveness comes in answer to our request. Psalm 25 verse 11 says, for the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity, for it is great. We need to ask God to forgive us. Forgiveness comes following repentance. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon them. Repentance has sometimes been defined as doing a U-turn. You're heading in one direction, and you turn around and head in the opposite direction. God asks us to repent of the wrong in our lives. Then lastly, forgiveness is actually an attribute of God. With God, is the forgiveness. God who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. God is a forgiving God. He wants to forgive us, but we need to ask him, we need to repent for that to happen. Quotation, you may not find forgiveness with other people. Your husband or your wife may not forgive you. 
if you have wronged him or her. Your children may not forgive you. Your co-workers may not forgive you. You may not even be able to forgive yourself. There is one who will, and that one is God. Write down where you can see and reflect on it often. Our God is a forgiving God. I don't know if any of you watched the program during the week, uh, Patrick Kilty looking at the peace process in Ireland. Obviously, Claire and I watched it. It was, it was very interesting. Patrick Kilty, the comedian, his father was murdered by so-called loyalist paramilitaries in 1988. And he showed a remarkable degree of um, grace, I felt, as he was talking about how that had affected his life. But he used the expression, he said, I don't think I have forgiven my father's murderers. I don't think I have forgiven them. And I'm not judging him because in similar circumstances, I think I would struggle as well. Yet when we think about God, God forgives us even though our actions and our behavior murdered his son. It was our sins which took Jesus to the cross, as we've been singing about earlier. So with God, there is forgiveness for our sins. Then with God, there is unfailing love. At their wedding ceremony, couples commit to love till death do us part. Yet the current statistic is that 42% of marriages currently end in divorce. I've no doubt that at marriage, most couples mean the vows that they take. But however high the intention of the will, nothing can be guaranteed. But God's love is a different kind of love. It is centered in his will and not just his emotions. It's a settled commitment that doesn't fluctuate and doesn't change because God is committed to us as his people. So no matter what we do or say, we can be certain of God's unfailing love towards us. He may be disappointed. He may even be angry with how we're behaving. He may be totally opposed to the attitudes or the values that we're displaying. But his love is undiminished. It's constant. The closest human example I can think of is that of a parent to a child. Doesn't mean you always approve of what your children are doing with their choices, their values, their behavior. But you still love them in spite of it all. You long to see them change. Sometimes we drive a wedge between them and ourselves by how we behave towards them. How do we try to encourage such change? The underlying motive is love, however imperfectly that is expressed. God doesn't make the same mistakes. His love is fixed. It is constant. And Philip Yancey has written, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more and nothing we can do to make him love us less. An incredible thought. God's love is unfailing. It never runs out. It never gives up. 
It is unfailing. And then the third word that I highlighted was the word redemption. That word, it's an old-fashioned word again. In the context, it had a social, a legal, and a religious custom. The metaphor of, rebellion, of redemption includes the ideas of loosing from a bond, setting free from captivity or slavery, buying back something lost or sold, exchanging something in one's possession for something possessed by another. As Nick said to this morning, it is a ransom. And the words used have a broad meaning of protective care. And in Psalms, they have a very particular care. The Lord's capacity to protect and rescue his people. More accurately, to ransom his people from iniquity and its consequences. Ransom happens by paying a price. It is never cheap. And the Lord has found a ransom price which on the one hand satisfies his holiness and appeases his wrath and on the other hand releases his unfailing love to flow out unchecked to the guilty soul. In the Old Testament system, this involved the animal sacrifices. But then Jesus came and died on the cross, the ultimate redeemer sacrifice, perfect once for all, as we read in Hebrews. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So with God, there is forgiveness for the guilty. There is unfeeling love for the guilty. And there is redemption for the guilty. That is why we can have hope. But how can we be confident, even certain that God will forgive, keep on loving, provide us with salvation? David uses the expression, as watchmen wait for the morning. The commentators are divided on who those watchmen were. It could have been the Levitical guards who guarded the temple, and they longed for the morning so that the morning sacrifices might begin, might be given. On the other hand, it may have been soldiers who were on the night watch and were longing for the morning when their shift would be over they could get to bed and sleep and they hadn't allowed any of the enemy to infiltrate the, the camp. Either way, they were longing for the morning and the morning would come. And so we, if we put our trust in God and his love, his forgiveness and his redemption, we can be as, as sure, as certain as these watchmen that the morning will come. That is the certainty of the hope that we have. So what then should we respond, or how should we respond? What should be the desired outcome from we've looked at the problem, we've looked at the solution, what then should be the outcome? Well, we've read, with him is full redemption. 
And the NIV translates it, so that we can with reverence serve you. The authorized version translates it, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Somehow it seems a little bit different, but the word that's used in the Hebrew, most times it is used, it is translated as feared. The word fear today has negative connotations. We don't like to think of that. But a number of years ago, Christians were often known as God-fearers. Today, the word doesn't convey the same meaning. But for the Christian, it's not a frightened fear of God. But the word brings awe, reverence, adoration, honor, worship, confidence, thankfulness, and love. So one of the great purposes of God's forgiveness to us is to build a sense of gratitude and reverence within us. His pardon to us should lead to purity and his forgiveness to an appropriate fear of displeasing him, one who has been so gracious and kind to us. In human terms, you don't want to upset someone that you really respect and admire. You'd go out of your way to try and show them kindness. That's a poor analogy, but the best I can think of, of how we should be responding to God. Again, a couple of quotations. Those who have been forgiven are softened and humbled and overwhelmed by God's mercy. And they determine never to sin against such a great and fearful God goodness. They or we do sin, but in their deepest hearts they don't want to. And when they do, they hurry back to God for deliverance. God's loving kindness is so great and wonderful that the apprehension of it fills the soul with such a sense of his love that it is frightened. Frightened, that is, not at God, but at sin. If we realize how much our sin, the things that we do wrong, displease God, hurt God, we won't want to do them. We'll want to live in the way that God wants us to. We'll try not to sin. Romans 6 verse 1, Paul wrote, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. When we do, we need to turn to God for his forgiveness. Again, the translation in the New International Version is so that we can serve the Lord with reverence. The children of Israel were given a task by God. And that was to be a holy nation, a nation that was different from the surrounding nations, to live differently, to behave differently, to have different values, and to be a light to the Gentiles. In that way, as they lived differently, they would witness to the one God. They failed very, very often, unfortunately. But that is the same task that God has given us today, to be different and to show his love to those around. 
And is there something about the way I live, my outlook on life, my values, the respect and care I show to others that is attractive, that shows something of the holiness of God, that others would want to share in that? Do we, do we, do I have a burden to share the news of forgiveness, God's unfailing love and redemption to a world that is desperately in need? So as we've thought about hope for the guilty, I hope we've seen that all of us are guilty. It's not the other person. We are all guilty as having broken God's laws and God's standards. But there is hope for us because with God, there is forgiveness, unfailing love, and redemption. Maybe this is the first time tonight you've heard that message. If it is, then I would ask you to think long and hard about turning to God and asking him for his forgiveness. Giving control of, his, of your life to him. You can know with absolute certainty that he will respond and that he will forgive. More likely, you've been a Christian like me for many, many years. You're doing your best to follow Jesus, to obey his commands and live a life worthy of our calling. We realize we do fall short. But God still loves us. There is still forgiveness and there's redemption. I ask that each of us just stop, take time to bask in the warmth, in the glow of this love. Because that, that is the hope that we as guilty people have. The confident certainty that God loves us and will never stop loving us. Thank you, Lord.